forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I have a lot of bad dreams. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and um, sleep paralysis, baby. We were talking about it before we started, so uh, let's get into it. I had the wildest dreams this morning. I have a busy day today, so whenever I have like a lot of stuff, of course I'm gonna like not be able to sleep the night before. And so around like 4.30, I was like up and I couldn't fall back asleep for forever. And then when I finally fell back asleep, I then had the series of just like the most stressful dreams possible that at one point involved there being, okay, so some backstory. I, I hate bugs, as we've discussed many times on this show. Yeah, for sure. Ants should all die. Come at me, environmentalist. <laughs> I have a lot of bugs in my apartment, and I was like telling my parents about it yesterday, and that I that I'm just cut that it's just covered in bugs. And then I had this dream that I like had to rush back to my apartment in the middle of a hair appointment. So like already, what's going on? Um, and then there were all of these lizards everywhere. <laughs> And I had to like try and get, catch all of these lizards. And I was like catching these lizards with like paper towels and then like throwing them over the balcony so that what they just kind went. Of, what kind of lizards? <laughs> just like, just like little lizards. And there were so many of them. And then there was also lizard shit everywhere. Like, so that was also a thing where I was like, I had to get back to my haircut. But I also was like very worried that like sugar would ingest the lizard shit and die. That is so detailed and so specific. (laughs) And it's so funny because obviously in psychology, there is like this history of like dream analysis. Yeah. But I refuse to give into it. I refuse to believe that my dreams mean anything because they're always so terrifying. (laughs) I think that it's more straightforward than people. Like, they'll be like, oh, my God, it means this, this, and this, the lizards represent. But also, it it probably just means that you're stressed out. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not, like, as complex as people ascribe it to. But who knows? I could very well be insulting uh, the person I was dating last year who was, I think, mom is a dream therapist. Oh, is that a thing? Because you're in school for psychology. Is that a, a, a thing like being a dream therapist? I've never heard of that being like the main thing, but, but definitely some therapists talk about dreams. My favorite quote was like when one of my professors was talking about someone they know who used to be an analyst, which is like what you think of as what Freud did and then yeah. became more of a more modern therapist. And she would say that she believes that the subconscious exists. She just doesn't think it matters. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Well, we were talking about, I hope they don't mean anything, but we were talking about sleep paralysis, which Melissa, our producer, and I both have. You can't move and you're awake, but you're like in bed and you're, I, it's like I hallucinate stuff. Like I thought Ugh. like a murderer was in the house. I thought that I was in bed, laying in bed with my mom, my sister who live in Florida and that a murderer was coming to kill us. I heard a telephone ringing that wasn't there. It is, the human mind is is like just a terrifying place on its own. I got to figure out what's causing like the sleep paralysis and I got to like, it's really, it really will ruin your week, man. 
Ugh, I know. I, I used to have all of these dreams when I was with Jake, my ex-fiance, that he was going to – that he left me. And that Stop I couldn't, it. and that I couldn't get in touch <gasps> with him. And I would, ha- I had them for like months at the beginning of our relationship. And I would just be like, "Oh, Allison, your dreams." And now I'm like, "Am I a psychic?" You never had that before. <laughs> what do you mean? Like you never dreamt before when you were dating someone that they were going to leave you? Not like this. And it was recurring. I would dream all the time that he left me, and that I like was trying to get in touch with him. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Maybe you're psychic. Oh, my God. I hope not, because then I'll have lizards in my apartment. (laughs) Honestly, I don't really see a lot of lizards here in Los Angeles. And in Florida, like where I'm from, there are lizards everywhere. There's a lizard in your house at any given time. You just live amongst them. Lizards freak me out less than bugs. Yeah, of course. Lizards are fine. Who cares? But like bugs are, it's just like you don't know where they are. You know what I mean? You can't get them. And I don't like that. We got to stop talking about it. Okay. 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 Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. What is this show about? Who knows? (laughs) It's good because I think people have very strong opinions about dreams. I know like one of my exes was like, I don't want to ever hear someone tell me about their dream. And then my, my old roommate, Drew will fully voice memo you three for three minutes to tell you about her dream. And she like writes down all her dreams. I don't like a voice memo. Is that a bad thing to say? Really? I love a voice memo. I'm like, I'm texting with you. It's like annoying to me to have to switch to an audio format. Wow. Really? Yeah. But I'm sure that's just a me problem. No, Melissa's shaking her head. You don't like them either? Yeah, they stink. If you want to voice memo me, call me. Oh, I like the voice memo because it gives you time. But also, like, in the last few days, I've had people just be like, I can't say it all on text. I'm just going to FaceTime you. Yeah, that's more normal to me than a voice memo. I love a voice memo. Yeah, you've sent me them. Um <laughs> We have got a great episode for you guys this week. Oh, yeah. We're going to be talking to Liz Winstead all about why comedy is such an effective way to talk about politics. She is one of the co-creators of The Daily Show. So this is like very Mm -hmm. exciting for us. And later, we're going to be talking all about oversharing. How do you know the right amount to share? Oh, good. I'm glad two experts are talking about this. (laughs) But first, we have to answer a listener's question so you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Chloe, Toronto. People are getting so good at giving the info we need up top in the emails. We got pronouns. We got cities. Love it. So, Chloe, she, her, says... Allison and Gabby, I'm a longtime follower, first-time emailer. I've loved your content for so many years. I wish I had friends who spoke about relationships, mental health, and careers like you two. You're hilarious and thoughtful, and I'm so appreciative to have grown through my young adult years alongside you both. Oh my gosh, I'm going to cry. Okay. Me and my partner, he, him, have a very supportive and nurturing long-distance relationship where we are living our independent lives on opposite sides of the country, but we chat every day and get to visit each other just enough often. Both of us have had long-term struggles with our mental health. For me, it's anxiety. and For him, it's more depression, which I've had bouts of, but I can't say that I understand his experience. 
I, I think it is so insightful to say that because depression presents in such different ways. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. just the difference between how it presents in me and you is like astronomical. Yeah, this is this is an aside from us. But yes, yeah. that struck me as well. OK, so we both care a lot about improving our mental and physical health, but struggle with establishing and maintaining healthy routines. Mm-hmm. He consistently expresses to me that he wants to be doing more of meditating, cooking at home, working out, better sleep hygiene, etc. When we are together, it feels like a vacation and all bets are off in terms of healthy routines because our schedules are so busy with plans to make the most of our time. When we are apart, we are cheerleaders for each other's individual goals. Neither of us are interested in being hardcore health people. We have good Mm. days and less good days, but we like to celebrate our small wins and inspire each other to keep trying. My partner is older than me by 12 years. He's in his 40s. His body is changing. His hair is thinning. He's gained some weight and his self-confidence is declining. I love him and his body and these changes are the furthest thing from an issue for me, but I don't know how to support him. He says disparaging comments about himself and I don't know what to say. I try to compliment him, but it feels forced and weird and a lot of the time I just end up kind of quiet. As someone with anxiety, I know the importance of reassurance, but I struggle to give it. I never want to encourage him to lose weight. He's healthy and his gripes are purely aesthetic. But I do want to encourage him to do the things that care for his mental and physical health and make him feel good. He's so much happier when he's meditating and working out and eating well. But sometimes he has a slew of less good days where he smokes a lot of weed and watches TV all day. I love to do the same and I'm not being judgmental, but I know a lot of that is not good for his mental health. I don't know what to say or do when this happens. I want to give him the space to do what he feels he needs to do. I don't want to be a source of pressure, but I want to make a positive impact where I can. Mm-hmm. How can I motivate my partner to take action and help him break a semi-depressive pattern? Is that even my place at all or should I let him be? How do I encourage him to make healthier decisions without making him think I have negative thoughts about his appearance? How does one talk about their partner's weight in a loving, supportive way and provide the right reassurances? I hope that's not too long of a question. Thank you so much. Wow. No, that was a really good question. Yeah. It's so funny because all the really good questions I read and I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Look, we're not perfect, me and Allison. Like, this is stuff that I think I- Excuse me. What? (laughs) What? Okay, I'm not perfect. No, we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. This is something that, like, is ongoing for me, too. That, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know how- to talk about this kind of stuff. I don't know what's correct. Like, you know, I have bipolar disorder. And when I'm manic, when when Mal is like, hey, I think you're manic, I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> or like, you know, in ways that they're trying to help with my gender stuff, Mal is very uh, nervous to compliment my appearance because they feel like they don't want to assure me either way. Like they don't want to be like, you know, oh, I I love your, which is like them being way too careful because I'm like, give me a compliment, please. But they're like, I don't, I don't want to say I like your long hair because I don't want to influence you not to cut it. Or I don't want to say I like your boobs because I don't want to influence you to keep them. So they're like being very like nervous. Mm -hmm. But then it's, it does have the effect of me being like, do you even like me? (laughs) But I know what they're, that, that they're doing it to try to like be a neutral party. So I don't know, like I, it's it's such a tightrope. Like I have no idea. I try a lot to just like let, cause Mal will go through every so often. They'll be like, I gotta join Equinox. And then I'll be like, you know, but I like, I like your little body. I like your little, like little like nugget body. 
I don't know. Like, it's hard because I want them to be happy, but I also like how they look. So it's like, I'm, this email is like, I don't, I can't solve it. Yeah, I mean, I think my advice is kind of threefold. Here's my three-tier plan that's completely made up. Okay. <laughs> my first one is you ask. You explicitly say, how do I best support you with this stuff? Ah, uh-huh. Because I know that it is a priority for you, but I also don't want you to feel like I give a shit about this stuff. <laughs> or like, mm-hmm. I give a shit only if, if in terms of your happiness. Right. Like, I don't want you to at all feel pressure from mm-hmm. me to change mm-hmm. your lifestyle or to lose weight or to have only good days or like feel like you can't tell me about your bad days or mm-hmm. anything. So I think having that explicit discussion of like, what kind of support works for you? Then- I think the second part of my plan, if I can even remember it from one second ago, is that you can you continue to just compliment your partner. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't necessarily need to do it. And I wouldn't necessarily do it in those moments where they're kind of freaking out. Yeah, where they're freaking out or, or they're being mean to themselves. And reassurance in those times is is hard and you don't want them to develop like an unhealthy necessity for you, that reassurance. You know, you don't want to get in that cycle or even like when I do that with Mal they'll be like no I just need you to listen to me I don't need you to say that I just need you to go yeah that's hard and like yeah and like I think obviously in those moments you want to say something where like look I'm incredibly physically attracted to you I think you I'm obviously think that you're a wonderful person but I I do want to give space and hear the things that you're processing Mm -hmm. so you know you you can say you know, validation to that extent, but like, you don't want to have to be like, no, but no, but no, mm-hmm. you know, that then you're just getting in this cycle. But making sure that like, just like when you think a nice thing about your partner, I don't think people do this enough. Just share it because mm-hmm. chances are we're probably thinking nice things about our partners all the time. You know, mm-hmm. like sometimes like Aerie and John has just beautiful piercing blue eyes, which is like, <laughs> you know, very different from my family. And like, sometimes I'm just like struck by how beautiful his eyes are. And like, <laughs> I've, I've said that to him before, but I try to like, if it pops in my head, I say it again, you know, yeah. like, so when these nice things pop in your head about your partner, whether it's a physical attribute, whether it's like, oh, that what you did earlier today was so thoughtful. Like anytime you have one of those nice thoughts, like vocalize it. And then it's not going to feel fake and forced. Mm-hmm. And then I think that the third part of my plan that I've just made up is that it's not your problem. Oh. Ultimately, this is something that they're going through on their own. You can't force people to change. Even if you come up with this like elaborate gym schedule for your partner. Oh, yeah. They're Mm -hmm. not going to do it until they want to do it. Mm -hmm. And so when you try to like force things, even though you think that you're helping, it can then like cause kind of a problem because you then get annoyed that you've put this time and effort into this or like you're like, but we had a plan. Why aren't you sticking to the plan? Yeah. And so I think it's the healthiest thing is just sort of like, you're supportive of them. If they want you to help them build a plan, you do that day, fine. But like ultimately recognizing that like this is just something that they're going to have to come to on their own, that they're Mm going to need to be self-motivated about and Mm -hmm. that you could just be supportive along the way. I will say that to the part about being in a long distance relationship and having it be a vacation when you hang out, you know, Mal and I were long distance for a long time. And now that we live together, it's a little bit easier. But I think maybe you start treating that more like a regular life type thing when you hang out. Like, 
and planning things that are more active if you want to together, like doing hikes or like spending time together in a way that like you both feel you're being a little productive. I think like taking the all bets are off approach wasn't great for me and Mal. So I I do think like if you want to do that together by like trying to be like, oh, we're going to, you know, I've had partners where we went and worked out together or, you know, it was just like a way to to spend time together. Not necessarily that. And me and Mal will have nights where we're like, today's a healthy night. Like today we're going to do, we're going to eat healthy things. And like, you just like kind of bounce off each other. It's like doubling, like encouraging each other to like mirror each other in that way. And like, it can be negative, but it can also be positive to, to like mirror each other and to like do things together. And also encouraging, like, you know, sometimes having a witness to your behavior actually makes things different. Like Mal goes to skate club every Wednesday where they skateboard. And sometimes they'll like, like 30 minutes before they'll be like, I don't want to go. And I'll be like, you should go. And they're like, I don't want to go to skate club. I'm like, man. And I'll be like, go to skate club. Like you'll feel better after. And then they're like, fine. Cause somebody's there being like, you gotta go to skate club. Whereas like, if nobody's watching me, I'll just like deteriorate. (laughs) (laughs) It's a tough balance though, right? Because you don't want to be like awarded to your partner. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. But I just know I'm like, you're going to have a good time. Go skate. Yeah. But I yeah. think that like if Mal one day was really like, I do not want to like you can do like, why don't why don't you go to the gym? I don't want to go to the gym. Are you sure? Yeah. OK. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like try once, try twice. Stop trying. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, I don't know, man. It, with your partner's appearance, it's hard. Look, I've had older boyfriends. And it's like, I like how you look. And they're doing all this shit to try to, like, look younger or change, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm like, oh, okay. But I, it's never anything that I've, like, noticed or had a problem with. I think, you know, in those moments, literally being as direct as possible of, like, look, like, I think you look great. But I understand that that my opinion is not what we're talking about right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so that you could like sort of like say that at the beginning of the conversation. You know, I had a boyfriend who was going gray and would dye his hair. And I was like, no, the gray is hot. But like, you know, at the end of the day, it's what he wants to do. So, right. It's really tricky. It's also hard because I take this line of like this thing that's really helped me is that like I don't really put myself down. So Mm -hmm. even if I am feeling not great about my appearance or if I'm like, "Mm, you know, should I change this? Should I do that? In the last few years, like I don't really vocalize it that much Mm -hmm. because I found that that leads me to have a much like happier internal world and happier relationship with my own body and appearance. And so, you know, you also don't necessarily want them to like once a week shit on themselves to you Mm -hmm. for half an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just because it's bad for them you know like obviously yeah. you want to be there and you want to support them but I do think that there is something too when we when we stay in that place and when you know and it's mm-hmm. hard because like our partner is often the person that we talk things through with mm-hmm. but this is more advice for just people listening I feel like those kinds of thoughts and those that kind of disparaging you know like are you really doing yourself a service by talking about it all the time or are you giving it even more power right that makes sense but yeah ultimately i think the biggest takeaway is like this is not on you this is like you are the the co-pilot you know mm-hmm. like you can ask what to do you can be supportive you can be there you can compliment 
more than maybe you're doing now because I just think all relationships should do that. I think that that's just like a great tip for any couple. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, like this is on your partner to figure out what steps they're willing to take and what they want to do. And if you get into this thing where you're creating the schedule, you're creating the plan, it's going to cause some issues, I think. And I will say Mal does compliment me. They do think that I have a genius IQ and that I should get tested. But I don't know if they have said that. And so they do compliment me in other ways, which you can also do to your partner. Yeah, that explains a lot. They, why? (laughs) Whatever, fine, whatever. You'll all see when I'm in Mensa. (laughs) Hopefully that helped. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Liz Winstead. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. Our guest this week is Liz Winstead, who is the co-creator and former head writer of The Daily Show and Air America Radio co-founder and has just helped change the landscape of how people get their news. I don't even know how to sum up your career. Like, I just have heard about you my entire life of being like a person vaguely in comedy. Hi. (laughs) I know. I've been around since dirt. I invented comedy. Kind of. Yeah. Can you, just for our listeners, like, tell us, like, how your career started and what you're, like, most known for and everything? Sure. So I started out doing stand-up back a long time ago before either of you were even close to being on the earth. I could have aborted you twice over, I think, if I I chose to not have children in the world. Started doing stand-up and, you know, I'm a fine stand-up. I like doing stand-up. People come and see me do stand-up. And I've always been a really political person, like as a being and a strong feminist. But my comedy really wasn't. My comedy was sort of observational and it was definitely talking about misogyny. But I didn't really dive into politics until the first Gulf War when... I literally went on, this is true fact. Somebody set me up on a blind date, like before there was like apps. And I went on this blind date and the guy showed up and he was wearing a Yankees jacket, those satin ones and a Yankees hat. And first of all, I was like, why would somebody set me up with someone who liked sport ball? But second, I have a theory that If there's a person wearing more than one Mm. piece of team clothing, they won't go down on you. (laughs) So it was kind of like disappointing all around. Not (laughs) really the point of the story, just tangential to the story. We go to a movie. He falls asleep during the movie. Um, I was so rageful that I took my greasy popcorn hand and smeared it on his satin jacket just to be a bitch and then instantly felt terrible about it because I'm from Minnesota. So I suggest we go to a bar to make up for it. He takes me to a sports bar and there's not sports on TV. The Gulf War is on TV and there is theme music and there's graphics and all of the anchors that I used to know were replaced by like hot, young war thirst traps. Mm -hmm. And I was like thinking to myself, are they reporting on a war or trying to sell me a war? Just kind of thinking inside. Mm -hmm. And two seconds later, the guy goes, this is so awesome. And I was like, I hate our world. 
that's what they're doing. And I, if you were ever to have an epiphany about how to change your life, like that was my comedy epiphany of like, I have to now talk about like how we're just being fed and manipulated Mm -hmm. and, and couple that with the fact that I identify as female. And when you're a female presenting person who steps on stage and decides your opinion matters, that in and of itself is a profoundly radical act to most people. So then I was like, I just need to start saying things. So I started doing stand up, being political, talking about the media and how the media was crummy. I moved into an apartment building with somebody who was producing Jon Stewart's talk show um, that was on MTV. And John was like, hire Liz. We need a segment producer. So I got hired. Um, that show got canceled. John got tied up into a development deal with Letterman. And mm. Madeline Smithberg, who was the person I moved in with, and I, I got called into Comedy Central. And they said, we want to do a show that responds to the world. Do you guys want to make it? And I'm like, I've never made a show. I didn't say that, but I was like, and it was like my dream. And I was like, is my wow. dream happening to me right now? And I was like, okay. But I said, you know, a show that just does headlines is, is basically a longer version of Weekend Update. I think the show should actually have the news be a character. And they were like, okay. And I was like, just saying words. And they were like saying, okay. And I was like, <laughs> when does that ever happen in the history of the world? But then wait for it. They go, you know, a show like this probably needs development. So I think what we'll do is just put it on the air for a year without a pilot. And just let the show develop. <gasps> and I think I peed in my pants a little. What year was this? It was the year that time forgot. 1995. <laughs> and it was like the only show that I have ever heard that didn't pilot was The Simpsons. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. And so they allowed this show to grow on the air. They allowed two women to make it. That's what most people know me for. And then I was there for a few years. I was the head writer. And then I left there and I did some crazy, fun, failed shows for like Oxygen. I did an off-Broadway show that was like a satire of like the Today Show with the wonderful <laughs> Baron Vaughn and I hosting this. Oh, Baron. Yeah, I played this sort of Kathy Lee Gifford character who really <laughs> yes. wanted to be Kelly Ripa. So I had this really bad like just wrong, like kind of off midriffs and kind of satiny things. And a lot of like, this is, you know, I'm relevant. I'm, here I am. Being uh-huh. And then I launched Air America Radio and I had a radio show with Rachel Maddow and Chuck D for two years, which was very fun <laughs> and such an odd combination. And then I wrote a book. And then when I was writing the book was back when, for people who kind of follow news or politics, you'll remember Wendy Davis standing on the floor of Texas in her sneakers for 11 hours, trying to like... Filibuster. Horrible abortion bans. And I didn't know what I was going to do when my book came out. And when that happened, I grabbed my two dogs and I drove around the country in a van for 18 months, raising money for Planned Parenthood, independent abortion providers and abortion funds. And I raised like $18 million in (gasps) months for all these places. And then I was like, I can't just continue to be this abortion vagabond. So I had a potluck at my apartment. This was back in 2013 or 14 with comics and graphic designers and producers, like everyone I knew. And I was like, look, 
we all do this thing we love because birth control and abortion helped us. Like that is just real. Mm -hmm. And I was just traveling around the country. And when I would go to these, and I would go visit the clinics, Mm -hmm. not just do shows, but I would go visit the clinics. The clinics would say in literally disbelief, like, why are you here? No one ever comes to visit us. (laughs) Like no one's ever nice to us. Like all we do is Uh... walk through a sea of people telling us we're terrible and following us home at night. And I can't believe you're here. And I was like, I can't believe people aren't here. So I created this organization. First, we called it Lady Parts Justice because it was based on this woman that I met in Michigan who was on the floor of the state house in Michigan fighting to not have a transvaginal ultrasound ban. The speaker of the house in Michigan said, you can't say the word vagina, say something more appropriate like Lady Parts which is super offensive. But then lady parts was just not inclusive and people don't identify as ladies. And yeah, and we yeah, just, yeah. You know, we're just like, you know what? Anybody got time for that shit? So, you know, let's like degender this bitch up and make it right and have everyone feel included. And so we started an organization that is part touring the country, doing shows, and then inviting the providers and the activists on the ground to be part of our show and have conversations so that our audiences learn how they can be helpful. And then we grow local community activist spaces. And then we have mutual aid programs where people adopt clinics and send them the supplies and the products and help do patient care. And and then we do like exposing just shitheads. And we're about to launch a talk show every Thursday on YouTube called Feminist Buzzkills Live, where we actually are just going to do what's been needed for a million years, which is a weekly hilarious show that updates you on this specific garbage that's happening to Mm -hmm. us so that we don't just panic when it's Texas and Mississippi and Georgia. We're given tools. You're healed from experts. Comics will come on. And I feel really excited about it. So that's what I'm doing. That's me in a nutshell. What did you change the name of the group to? Abortion Access Front. Yeah, just so people know what to Google. (laughs) Or Abortion AF. We have good swag. Yeah, yeah. We changed it to Abortion Access Front. Not only did we want to be inclusive and have people understand, we always were inclusive. It was just our name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why not say what it is, which is abortion? Yeah. Because that's the whole thing. We have been so programmed by the other side to use their rhetoric and their vernacular that we often, we also do workshops on stigma just to talk about Mm -hmm. abortion. And it's so interesting when you ask people like, when they say things like, you know, no one's pro-abortion, they're pro-choice. I'm like, I'm pro-abortion. I <laughs> And it's because I don't right, have any right. moral feelings about it. You know, it's a dignified moral choice that someone mm-hmm. may make in their, in their reproductive lifetime. And mm-hmm. we've got to recenter it there because that's what it is. Because there aren't good abortions or bad abortions. There's just the abortion somebody needs. And that's mm-hmm. all I'm interested in. How you got there, that's you. And you can let me know as much or as little as you want about how you got pregnant. But all I'm here to say is I'm going to help you get that abortion if that's what you want. That's my, Mm -hmm. that that is my goal and that is my heart. Why of all the, you know, the topics in the news and policies, is this the one that you've really gravitated towards? That's a great question. And I think it's because A, I've had more than one abortion and B, because it's the least talked about, there's 150 stories a week that we call and look at in our sort of news aggregate around people trying to curb access to reproductive care. 0.3% of our news media covers this issue. When it happens to over 50% of the nation are people with uteruses. You know, it's like 
51% are women and then add on people who don't have uteruses but don't identify as women, then it's even more, right? And so for us to not talk about it and especially to not break it down for what it is, which is redefining who we are as property of the government or somebody mm-hmm. else on some level. And if we don't work really hard to have folks fundamentally understand that that's what hap- that's what's happening to every single person who is on the show, walking the earth, moms, sisters, friends, partners, we won't win, you know? We're, mm. and, and so we really need to put it into the terms of that's what's happening. And, you know, and Texas laid it out for people, but there's been so much up till Texas that, and we got to Texas because no one talked about it. You know, we get right. to these places because we're not having conversations that are hard. And for years, I have to be honest, like the generation before me and my generation really did a disservice on how we talk about abortion. We just, it was very stigmatizing. It was coming from, you know, this sort of pro-choice lens. And if you're wondering why I say that with some negativity or disdain, it's like, if we can just throw the phrase pro-choice around, it means we fundamentally don't understand that people don't have the choice. Poor Mm -hmm. folks, people of color, people who are just looking, you know, if there's a 15 year old person who is, comes from a low income background and they're pregnant and they would like to carry their pregnancy, don't we have an obligation in society to help honor that person through whatever choice they make to have them have mm-hmm. a healthy family? And same with honoring a choice of somebody who wants to have an abortion. I just feel like I want to get to a place where we create programs and lives where we are honoring all pregnancy outcomes and people can Mm -hmm. thrive. I just want people to thrive. I think it's so interesting that like there is this, and I I feel it myself of like this trepidation of, you know, not being like abortion is great, but being like abortion in these circumstances is important, you know? But like, I think that you're right that in pushing it to just like all abortions are great, are valid, are somebody's choice, are should be accessible. It really is a different way of approaching it than this more like timid, well, in cases of rape and incest and, you know, if someone is young or, you know, but that like, it really is something that should just be healthcare, healthcare, like yeah, getting- it's just healthcare. Yeah. yeah. I think, I don't know that anybody comes out of the gate having this evolutionary abortion stance. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was very much like just handed talking points because I wanted to not sound like a radical. Right. Right. And then what I realized is I'm a radical, (laughs) (laughs) but also fundamentally talking to more people who've had abortions and talking to physicians that provide them when they would tell me that they felt like they couldn't share who they were and that they felt so sad when people would put caveats on abortion, well, at least for rape and incest, you know, no one likes abortion, like these things, like, why don't people do this? They felt like terrible. And they wouldn't Mm -hmm. confide in people that they had abortions when they needed support because people would say things like that, thinking they were being supportive, right? Mm -hmm. And we've done workshops with providers of abortion who confided in us that they don't tell their own doctors. If they live in hostile states that are like where you don't know, where like in Alabama or or Mississippi or something, 
they won't tell their own private physicians what they do for a living because they don't know if they'll get good care. Right. And so, you know, the more that we can talk about it and say it and reclaim it, the more I think that we can really stop this train from going. Because if we don't put it forward and we don't say this issue matters and you politician, your career is going to be decided on how you vote. And I'm going to make sure of that. Like I'm going to fight every day to make sure of that. Unless they feel the pressure, uh, they're not going to, they're going to always compromise us. And like, what part of somebody's body is okay to compromise and why have we allowed it to be so? And that's Mm -hmm. the part that I, where I just get super passionate about it. And it's also fun to just like, also make fun of these people who are stupid and say dumb things. Like I was like, the New York Times prints an op-ed from some woman who is like, Maybe Texas is on to something. Maybe this is the beginning of something good because at six weeks, a fetus develops an eyes and a jaw. And I was like, a jaw? I mean, what? A, a six-week jaw? I mean, and maybe if you're Jay Leno, but like there's no jaw on a six-week fetus. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I was going to ask. So like with your work, like, do you think it's, or what do you find? Like galvanizing people who are like, of course I am pro-abortion. I just like am not super up on it and like whatever. Or like, you know, do you find like being like these stupid people, like can you change minds? Can you get to the person who's like, Jesus told me that a sperm is a baby or whatever. You know, like can you change minds? Is that a thing that is possible? I think that's a really good question. And I think that... There's some people whose minds, you know, you're never going to change, right? Mm -hmm. But I think where I like to focus is there's too many people who say they care about this issue who have not been motivated or persuaded or inspired or given things to do that will keep them sustained and in the fight. And so part of what I love about what we're doing is I just want to get the word out. And then we also have so many opportunities for people. Like if you volunteer with us, you can do something for five minutes, for five weeks, you know, whatever it is, whatever your capacity is, we can help you. We're not, I mean, sure. Do we need donations? Always. But most people don't have money to give, you know? So, you know, building the morale of clinics, you know, whether it's, we, we create postcards and we send these postcards of support that you can't believe how much hate mail a clinic gets and how much it means for them to get a piece of mail that says, we're so excited you're in the community, right? Writing good reviews of abortion providers in your community because people will bomb them online with terrible reviews and they've never been there, right? So we're able to like uplift them so that when when the Google search comes up, they don't have terrible reviews. They have great reviews, right? You know, sure, go to a march, but then what are you going to do on October 3rd? Where are you going to be? You know, are you going to join us so that you can get marching orders every time because we've traveled so much around the country and we have, we've created our own network of really small activist groups that are doing the real work on the ground. And so we help each other. If there's a group that's doing something in Toledo, Ohio, and they've got the people, they've got the mobilization, but they um, need a graphic designer. We've got somebody who can help them design their graphics and then, and help amplify their march or their cook-off or whatever the taco beer drinking, raise money for your abortion or something, <laughs> you know, whatever they're doing. And so it's really nice with Texas, especially when that all happened and the Texas folks were all laser focused on how are we going to keep care, get patients who need care now out. We were able to steer everybody 
to give money to those funds that matter. Because, you know, let's be honest, there's vultures in every movement in every place. We're like, I'm going to fundraise off the back of somebody else. And it's like, that is not great. So let's just make sure that like, we're trafficking people into the spaces that they should go. You're sort of providing the infrastructure. Yeah, 100%. It was nice to fill a hole. It wasn't like we, and that's one thing I think people make mistakes is they hear something is happening that's big. And they're like, I'm going to start doing a thing. And nine times out of 10, that thing already exists, Mm -hmm. but people don't know it exists. And that's another problem when you ask, you know, why did you choose this issue area? It's because we don't talk about it enough to even know where are the resources, who's doing the work, how can that happen? And so to be able to amplify where the work is so that somebody's not starting a thing that you don't need to start, you can Mm -hmm. just get people over here to help make that thing that's already going stronger. What are your thoughts on why this is such a hot button issue? Why are people so obsessed with controlling other people's bodies in this way? You know, the short answer is pretty easy. I think that for years, we've just had a societal structure that rewarded white supremacy and that was built on the foundations of white supremacy and and male mediocrity. And uh, when all of a sudden, as life opened up to the myriad of talented people who weren't them and their mediocrity was challenged by talented people, there needed to be a way to shut people down because they would be found out. They could no longer skate through life with their half-assed bullshit when all of a sudden in come, you know, a tsunami of talent that come in various genders and races and everything else. And um, I think it's terrifying to people who have skated along. And I think that it's as simple as that, you know, feminism is destroying everything. And it's like, no, it's just, there's a marketplace of ideas now that's been open to all of us. And your idea just, nobody wants your stupid, stale day old pies. We're done. (laughs) I also wonder sometimes if it is a way for people to feel like they're a good person where they're like fighting against, you know, universal health care, they're fighting against welfare, they're fighting against all these programs that would help the disenfranchised, but they're like, but I care about babies. I mean, to devote your time and energy to something that doesn't need you to do anything <laughs> is really sad, you know? It's like, I'm going to defend the unborn. Okay, it's not unborn in you. It's yeah. not going to be born. So you just have this whole moral timestamp of defending this thing that is never actually going to need caring or whatever, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. I literally, the first year we went out on the road was the year that we found out that we were throwing undocumented people in cages at the borders. And we were on tour and every time I went to a clinic and I went to, we went to 30 clinics in a summer and I, there'd be protesters outside. And I said, when are you going to go? And defend the kids in cages. When is that trip? When is that church bus leaving? Mm-hmm. And they would say, it's not my issue. Wow. And I was like, oh. I thought kids were your issue. And they were like, the yeah. unborn is my issue. And I was like, you know, you don't have any issue. Well, you have a lot of issues. <laughs> That's when you're just like, oh, right. You, you don't care. You know, you have, have a made up morality that is some trash ass, non-moral, morality. And it's, it's pathetic, you know, and we can, you know, you can sort of cite a lot of 
the anti-abortion movement grew when you couldn't overtly be racist. So how could you be oppressive? You had to, you, oh, against, you know, this is a good thing for me to do. You know, right. go back to defining like roles in society and traditional lives and, and this made up biblical way of being and that men are the head of the household and women are the head of the children or some mm-hmm. bullshit thing that seems terrible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, it's just a lot. It's a lot, you guys. Because <laughs> then, you know, what What would it mean to actually care would be providing better access to information, birth control, providing uh, universal preschool, providing childcare, like all that stuff is like, you know, what do we do once these kids are born? You know, then it's sort of like, good luck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and even take it further. It's like everything that you listed that they feel superior about all of those programs would need to be enacted. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we need a healthy environment. If we're going to ask people to bring children into it, we're going to need larger scopes of healthcare. We're going to need an mm-hmm. education system that is accessible to everybody. You know, we're going to need to do a restructure of our tax system. We're going to have to have a living wage. Like all of these things are things that if you're going to have all of these babies running around and you are voting against every program that would help create healthy children, healthy families, healthy people. You're a monster. You're a monster. (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about the comedy of it all? Why do you think comedy is like such an effective way to talk about these things? You know, I think done right and done consistently, I think that comedians can be very trusted narrators. If you Mm. decide that you're going to identify hypocrisy or someone who steps in it, no matter if you like them or not. I mean, we spent the first part of this talking about pro-choice people, right? So I'm, I try to just call it as I see it. Um, if you do that, then I think people are like, oh, that person is at least consistent. They'll see something and they'll say something, right? If you have sometimes both sides feeling mad at you, I feel like you're doing something right. Um, it just means that you're not compromising. And the second thing is, if somebody makes you laugh, that is an intrinsic connection that you can't deny, right? Like truly somebody says something and you go in your gut, like you like them and that is, <laughs> yeah. and you can't deny that. And so creating a connection with a person is really good because I think so often we've been able to retreat and COVID is not, has been about the worst thing that can happen on many levels, but not being accountable to human beings with your shit stirring, I think is a problem. I really like having to say to people like, I think we need to have a conversation face to face. Or if you know someone has a different point of view, or if somebody wants to call me out, it's like, please call me out the way that you have been in your box, because I'm I'm here for it. But if you can't say it to my face, because some reason it makes you feel a bad way. Why is it okay to say it in text or through Twitter or some other thing? Like take stock of that. So, but I do think that comedy can often lay out just, it's just a nice way of, of having outrage. And I think that simply just being outraged, although I feel like I've been like 
Susie Rage on your show. But uh, I think just being... (laughs) (laughs) So are we, though. Okay, good. Just being outraged can just be like, eh. And so I think humor in telling tales and speaking truth to power, it's just generationally always worked. Mm -hmm. And especially in this time where there is more distrust of of journalism than I think historically there has been. And Mm -hmm. with a lot of these like cable news shows being very personality driven versus like facts driven, you know, it is still awesome that these, you know, like a John Oliver who is very political feels more like a trusted news source than CNN in a lot of ways. I mean, the deep diving and the research that goes into that show is more than Fox News has ever done. It's so good. And also, and it's hilarious to me too, like, and I'm sure you've heard it where people, of course, media creates stories, you know, think pieces like our late night comedy shows creating a cynical electorate. I'm like, bitch, no, you terrible media people created cynics like me who created the daily show. So don't yeah. try to blame it on the comedy shows. Take stock in your own self because your lazy garbage ass media made us try to tell people like, don't believe them. Do some of your own work. Mm-hmm. You know, here's some facts and funny. And, and comedians chose to do those shows. The media, that's their job. We chose to talk about the news and facts. We didn't have to. And what if we didn't? Mm-hmm. There'd be a lot dumber people in the world. I think it was interesting what you were saying about how you kind of know you're doing it right when both sides are mad at you. Yeah, I love that. What is your thoughts on like, I feel like a lot of journalists are like, well, we've got to show both sides, but it's not true. Right? Sometimes there's not another side. It's like, what, right. you know, and even today, I mean, even in the, in the current sort of crisis we're in now where it's like, why are the Democrats fighting within their own party? Like, and it's like, no, let's be clear. The conservative Democrats are what Republicans used to be. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. there is just the Democrats who we're calling progressive or liberal or radical but they're literally just following the tenets of the Democratic Party. So we've just written off the, you know, liberty chimps who are just completely off their rocker. And there's infighting within the Democratic Party, which has basically ostensibly become both parties. And so sometimes there's not another side. And I don't know why people have this both sidesism thing. And when you have talking heads on TV, like you said, who aren't smart enough on a topic and then they bring opposing points on and somebody's just trying to tell you the truth and then the crackpot, the moderator doesn't have enough skills to call down or take down the person who is just there spewing garbage. And then you're like, are you just doing this for show? Is this just like the WWE of news? Because that's certainly what it feels like sometimes. They don't have the courage. They don't want to do the confrontation because there's so much internet garbage of like, when I see conservatives go after someone, oof, like it is hard. You know, I've been, been definitely on the end of sort of liberals being mad at me and they'll be like, I'm mad at you and this, this and this. But if you're under the scope of like the conservatives being mad at you, it's death threats, rape threats. Like it gets to be like a different beast. Yes, so 100% where liberals are like, I don't like what you're saying. It's garbage. And then you're like, you can agree or disagree. 
Yeah. Right. I've never felt more threatened than I have been by the sort of also just like angry white men and mm-hmm. then conservatives and just like, I'm so tired of people screaming about cancel culture from a microphone or from the stage or from hosting Saturday Night Live or from your 87th Netflix special or from your number one podcast. I'm like, you are not canceled. You might be mad that like people who you want to like you happen to not like you, but you seem to have developed a fan base. And what you're really mad about is that the fan base that has gravitated to you, you don't want to hang out with. Well, sorry, that is not my problem. They're still paying you. You know, I, I'm not interested. I'm the abortion yeah. lady. You think I haven't had my share of people being like, I'm done with you? I don't complain about it. I've nurtured my audience and I'm trying to grow that space. And, you know, if you're just going to cast a wide net and be like, my fans were offended that they would have to wear masks at my shows. It's like, well, then get better fans. Yeah. Who are your, who are your fans? <laughs> How are you feeling about the state of this country? Are you feeling like, okay, we've got a big fight in front of us, but we can do it? Are you feeling like we're about to lose Roe versus Wade and it's about to be far worse than so many people imagined? Like, where's your mindset right now? You know, I feel like. Up until recently, I felt more positive because when I knew that people just weren't getting the information they needed to get them fired up and activated, and that when I would tell them and they would activate and then I would see them coming to things and volunteering and I was like, oh, good. It's just about telling the story and getting people on board. Yeah. But now I feel a little bit like the stories are being tamped down and we don't have a baseline of good anymore. It used to be no matter what your opinions were on things, we wouldn't let, you know, children die. Why are we arguing if climate change exists instead of how do we fix it? You know, so, right. so we, there's right. not a base level of reality. So I feel like the terra firma isn't solid and I don't know where to go. So I, I wish I felt more optimistic. I don't. I mean, it is good that, you know, Hearing that, like that recount in Arizona that crackpots thought they were going to try to throw and give to Trump. Well, turns out um, they counted all the votes and Joe Biden actually had 300 more votes. And so it's official. Joe Biden won Arizona. You know, so will that shut people up? I don't know, maybe. Um, But I don't know. I feel like when you look at so many horrible people who think that if you don't believe the way they believe, you shouldn't even Mm -hmm. be allowed to vote. And that the marketplace of ideas and people who are trying to win, you know, they switch up districts of how people work. So I live and, and, you know, who gets to vote for who. And it just all seems so rigged by people who are thinking that change is bad instead of interesting and go with it and learn and grow. Mm-hmm. It's like, I want to be set in my ways. And I don't understand that as a concept and why they think that they, they have this way that they've lived their whole lives and that's the way it has to be. And everything else is a threat to that. And it's like, you know, there was people who were like eight track tape player repairmen who like had to figure some new shit out. Like, why don't you have to just like 
Because they're comfortable. Because it's they're comfortable. That's but why. So many of these people aren't. They're not living great lives. They have medical debt. They're not being paid oh, fairly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it's so strange. They're voting against their own interests. Yeah, that part is always so crazy. And I think they get caught up in the potential of a life that they're never going to have. It's like you can have a really nice middle class life, but they're telling you that somehow cutting the capital gains tax of rich people is going to affect you. Yeah. I don't mean comfortable. I don't mean comfortable in their lives. I mean, comfortable in their ideas. In their ideas. Their ideas are set. They're like this. If I have to consider the fact that I might not become Jeff Bezos, I, 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 my whole house of cards falls apart. Yeah. And I guess how did that become the dream for people? Like, why aren't there these other areas with which we are allowed to be other things? And that's the part that I find so interesting is that this unattainable Jeff Bezos person has been set as some kind of standard that the Democrats are going to take away from you. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. time to play a game show. Yeah. Let's play a game show. <laughs> oh my God, is that good? Game show. <laughs> All right. So this show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in those situations. And then I get to just decide whose answer I like better. Woo! And sometimes I don't like anyone's answer. Oh my gosh. This yeah. is very hardcore. It's very cutthroat. Okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You come home to find your partner of 12 years asleep on the couch. The only problem is that your nanny of two years is snuggled up next to them, also asleep. When you confront them, they explain that they simply fell asleep while watching a movie. Would you stay with this sort of cheater? What were they wearing? Uh, Like their regular clothes. What movie was it? Um, Fern Gully. I love that movie. Very tricky. Liz, what are your thoughts? Why is the babysitter there with the husband? Great question. That's the Sherlock Holmes shit right there. They say that the husband came home while the kids were watching the movie. He started watching it. Then the kids went to sleep. And then the nanny wanted to finish the movie. So they they decided to finish it. But then they both fell asleep on each other. No. You know what? (laughs) Here's the deal. If If that's what they said. It's like, oh, you know what? If the kids are watching that movie and then you put the kids to bed and you're two grown-ass adults being like, oh, we just have to finish this movie? Like, mm-hmm. no. But it is Fern Gully and that is a good movie. It's Fern Gully, but if you're a nanny, how many times have you had to sit through Fern Gully? <laughs> That's true. Right? That's true. Fern Gully has come up a lot to keep the kids occupied, to watch it. You've had to do that with them. So if the dad's home and you're a nanny and you're like, oh, good, the dad's here, the kids are in bed, can I go? Totally, you can go. Mm-hmm. And then you didn't go, you fell asleep with the dad in a, what was the position they were in? Like her head was on his shoulder. Yeah, no, Mm-mm. I'm, I'm kind of done. Liz and I are both leaving. Well, that's a good choice because they are each other's soulmate. Yeah. And they're going to actually get married and have a Fern Gully themed wedding in a couple of years. Who gets custody of our kids? Um, You do, but they're terrible kids. <laughs> <laughs> the kids didn't even want to watch Fern Gully. 
Yeah, they hate Fern Gully. <laughs> oh my God, I hate my anti-environmentalist children. <laughs> I hate them. Oh my God. <laughs> okay, our next game. Is this a date? You are texting and driving and don't notice when the car in front of you stops short. You end up rear-ending the car, but the driver is really nice and understanding about it. When you start to give them your insurance information, they ask if you would rather do it over a cup of coffee at a very cute cafe down the road. Is this a date? What is this, a rom-com? No, because no one should date me if I'm texting and driving. I'm a bad person. 100%. I've never texted and drove. I'm like a mom. I have that thing on that that says, do, do not disturb. This person is driving. Yeah, I don't text and drive. I say it's not a date because that person deserves better than me. <laughs> And I say it's not a date because I feel like there is no reason that that person has any information or inkling that they would want to go out with me. I mean, I just think it's weird. Like, get your date someplace else. Like, take care of your shit and let's go. What if you're, like, very hot? I still feel kind of weird. Like, I just feel like, what are you trying to get out of, sir? Oh. Why don't you want to report this? Why do you want to do this over coffee? The body in their trunk. Did you steal this car. Yes. Well, yeah. unfortunately, you're missing out on the romance of your life. It was also going to be the best cup of coffee you ever had. Well, I feel like I make the best cup of coffee. <gasps> you should open a cute cafe down the road. How do you know I don't? <laughs> Maybe it was my cafe and I didn't want to go to work. <laughs> I just didn't want to go to my job to say I was texting so I'm not going and so that's it you were texting in about to be like please cover for me I don't want to go in today that's right that's right we're out of co- I'm closing the shop down for good <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> this really took a turn I thought you guys would be like oh adorable <laughs> No. no I, Liz is right. What's in the car? What's in the car? Like, everybody wants to get the shit out of there. So that guy's got something in his trunk. What's Whoa. in the car? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it is a body. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, our final game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, seven, is by far the best soccer player on their travel soccer team. They are so good that they scored 10 goals in the previous game, causing the other team to cry. They also hog the ball a bunch. In order to make it more fair for the other seven-year-olds, you tell them that after they score three goals in a game, they shouldn't score anymore or they might run out of energy and not be able to get ice cream afterwards. Are you a terrible parent? Yes. I want my kid to make every other kid cry. Oh my God. I'm raising a winner. I want my kid to be the absolute best. I'm trying to take that kid to the Olympics. I probably won't have kids, but if I do have a kid, that's my little soldier, baby. I got to make that thing. I feel like, first of all, I have abortions. I don't have children. I just want to make that clear. But um, I think that you did this behavior build, you know, that's very much like, and they won and they gloated and then they did this. And I feel like, yeah. I'm a terrible parent. I'm sort of indulging their shit. And it feels like I am teaching them that winning is the reward and that bonding and camaraderie and sportsmanship and and also just learning how to deal with loss, which I think are all things that are really important when putting kids in sports. 
you know, they should be learning those skills. I feel like they're learning none of them. They're just learning little asshole skills. You would do Allison's plan. 110%. Wow. Also, 10 goals is so many goals for soccer. Do you know anything about it? They're very good. I don't want them to, to tamper down their abilities for other people. But isn't that what living in a society is? No, I'm going to make them a sign that every morning when they get out of bed, it's going to say, you are better than everyone. Oh, my God. All right. Well, Liz definitely won this one. Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel like I did. I feel like I I feel like by a mile. <laughs> every morning, I'm going to make them look in the mirror and go, you're a winner. And I'm going to say, you're a what? And they're going to go, a winner. Oh, no. That's the kind of shit where it's just like, I'm I'm somewhere in the middle between Everyone gets a participation medal and you're a winner. But I feel yeah. like you got to find that balance. Like Fine. you have to get ice cream every time. Like some, it's okay, buddy, that you didn't score. You know, that happens sometimes, you know, you're going to, next time you're going to get up, you're going to there again and you're going to have a new experience to show you that you have a lot of different experiences in this game. It's very, you know, you learn the slight growth of complexity. Whatever. Ooh. What a wonderful note to end this on. The slight growth of complexity. <laughs> Thank you so much, Liz. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, you can find uh, me on all the social medias at Liz Winstead. I spell my name with two Zs. And you can find out all about Abortion Access Front on all of our socials. It's abortionfront and aafront.org is our website. Go volunteer, sign up, be part of it. It's really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you this so much. So wonderful. Thank you for being accommodating and being so fun. And I love your podcast. Thank you. Oh, my God. Oh, thank thank you. you. I appreciate it. This was such an honor to have you. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. 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 Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about oversharing. Have I said too much? Back to just between us. It's time for topics. X X X X X X X baby, baby. This week, I want to talk about oversharing. How do you know when you're doing it online or in real life? What is the right amount to share? What do you think? I don't know. I think one of the things that I'm learning, because obviously I'm an overshare. Let's mm-hmm, be real. Mm-hmm. And this was something that. Shiva said to me, who's one of a wonderful therapist who's been on the podcast before, and she was saying, what is the reason for the share? Is it because you want this person to know it or you want to share this information or are you sharing as a compulsion? Or just I'm like trying to be like, let's be friends. So part of being friends is like you have to share stuff so that you can deepen the friendship. Yeah, but I think sometimes it's like sharing because it's like it, it's like you feel like, oh, I got to share this. I'm going to share. Like it's like, you know, and, and maybe this is more of an OCD thing, but like feeling like you have to share it versus yeah. feeling in control of the sharing. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of important. Yeah. Mal's compulsive overshare. Compulsive. <laughs> like we'll walk into a situation where they'll be like, I'm not going to say this. Like this is the one thing like I can't say. 30 seconds in, they've said it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, I don't have that. I'm like, what is happening? Like, we went to meet our new neighbors and they were like, come come down. We're drinking around a fire or whatever. So I didn't want to go. Mal was like, I'm going to go for like 30 minutes and say hi. I go, okay. We're like rural where we are. I don't want to say what state, but we're rural. And they go, okay, well, 
when I go down there, I'm not going to say that I'm trans. And I was like, yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. Like, we don't know these people's politics. Like, you're going to be by yourself. Like, I think you shouldn't you shouldn't say that you're trans. I go down there half hour later when I wanted when I was ready to go down. Mal goes, I told them I'm trans. <laughs> I said, why did you do that? They were like, I don't know. It just came out. I'm like, what? What? You? I mean, not like you could have been killed, but you could have been killed. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like they can't. So, like, that's something that, like, okay, if I know I don't want to share something and I find that I'm sharing it, that's something to work on. <laughs> what do you do? Like, if you're in the middle, for you, Allison, like, how do you, do you go, ah! I've gotten a lot better. This is something I've had to really learn because I used to to say shit that I shouldn't say. Like, I... <laughs> This is like so stupid, but I will have these things where I'll be like, do not share that. Mm -hmm. And that honestly, I think is like kind of something I've learned through like getting better social skills, because Mm -hmm. I think a big part of my problem growing up was that I would say too much. And so Mm -hmm. now I really have like learned like what I can say, what I can't say. And sometimes it works better than others. Like Mm -hmm. an example I have is like, (laughs) so stupid, but like John has a couch that is like, it's beautiful couch, but it is like kind of like a velvety fabric. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I have realized that the only type of furniture that really works for me in my current state is like vegan leather or something I can wipe down. Right. So any sort of like fabric that like you can see the dirt or like you can see the fuzz and the hair and you can see the lit, you know, and so it looks, it, it can look dirty to me. So it freaks me out. And so I was like, asked if I could like get a a lint roller for his couch so I Mm -hmm. could sort of do that. So again, we're already working with compulsions. I'm my compulsions are already off the door. But like, you know what I mean? But in my head, I was like, okay, don't say that if we ever move in together, that we can't have this couch. Like, don't say (laughs) that. There's no reason to say that. We're not moving in together at this time. He's not insisting on the couch. He's not insisting on the couch. Like, I don't need to tell him that if we ever live together, <laughs> I can't have this couch. <laughs> Did you do it? Yes. <laughs> but I will say that, like, I, I made it, like, 20 minutes. Or, like, I didn't say it. Oh, my God, it. 20 minutes? I didn't say it, like, out of nowhere. Like, I think that, like, the conversation sort of came to a point where it felt Again, I still shouldn't have said it because, like, I didn't want to say it. I knew I didn't need to say it at this time. But, like, yeah, like, I still didn't say it. Wow. I don't really have that. I think because I just sometimes just say things. And then it'll be, like, a week later and I'll be like, should I have said that? I, I have learned to be like, okay, you're still talking, so be quiet. You know what it is? It's like I have to stop shit talking. Like, Mm. I think I just, like, bond sometimes with people by shit-talking, and I like other people who shit-talk, and it's, like, fine, because it's, like, people I trust, and it's not necessarily, like, anything that means anything, and also, like, I would prefer, like, some of these people, like, I have told them my problem with them, but, like, I have started to notice, like, okay, st- stop. You're just shit. You're shit talking. Like, and Mal's really good at being like steering the conversation to be like something else or mm-hmm. be about something else. And so I've noticed that. And I'm like, okay, that's actually really good. That's one why I can't have Twitter because I just run my mouth and shit talk. And then, like, 
Also, I think like there's a difference too of like talking to your friends and then online, I guess it seems like I share a lot, but I don't think that I do. I think there's a lot that I still keep to myself. And maybe that's a remnant too of my relationship with, uh, you'll all recall Garrett, uh, my relationship with <laughs> with Garrett, where he really didn't want to be talked about, really mm-hmm. didn't want to be talked about. And at the time I was like, bleh, bleh. but like now I'm like, oh, you're right. I shouldn't have said half the things that I said. Well, that's a really good point, right? They're sharing about yourself and they're sharing about other people. And those have different rules, I think, especially when it comes mm-hmm. to public stuff. So I, I've gotten really good, I think, about about being thoughtful about what I share online and and publicly. But yeah, I mean, it, it it is like when you're talking about other people in your life publicly, you have you can't go by your own boundaries. You have to go by their boundaries. My dad has mentioned not enjoying the way I speak about him on the podcast. So I just want to say uh, shout out to Mark Dunn. I I am sorry that I have talked flippantly about you on the podcast. He has shared recently that he does not enjoy my my broad strokes painting of him on this show. I got in trouble one time from my mom about what I said on the podcast because like mm-hmm. they're so great. They let me talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was like, so basically what I said was, I think we were talking about like astrology and you were talking about how like your family, like your mom went to psychics growing up and like believes in all this stuff. And then I said, the only thing my parents believe in is the stock market. (laughs) And they didn't like that? Well, because I think what I, what my intention with saying that was very different than how my mother perceived it because she thought that I meant that all they care about is money. Oh. But, but what I meant was the stock market is made up. Like, I don't believe yeah, yeah. in like, I the think stock the stock market is astrology. Yeah. Like to me, the stock market is just as much bullshit as like <laughs> all this other stuff. So that's like the one like thing that I, you know, but they, she interpreted it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that was like the only time I've ever gotten in trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which well, I get, trouble. I get based on how she interpreted it, but it's not what I meant, you know, and that gets into mm-hmm. the whole issue of all of it is like, what we say isn't always interpreted right. Uh-huh. And I'm in trouble with my parents constantly. So I just want to give a, a, a I'm sorry to Mark and Karen for the ways they have been portrayed on this show. <laughs> and I would like to publicly say my parents care about a lot more than money. <laughs> I just think that the stock market is bullshit and made up on people's like emotions versus like actual value of stock. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that family members don't like or like, you know, I'm very conscious of of trying to figure out how I talk about Mal and, and mm-hmm. they don't like sometimes how I talk about them where they don't care like I'm characterizing them, but they care like they're just like, stop saying things about me. <laughs> I'm like, that's rich considering like it took five minutes for you to tell a group of rednecks that you're trans. Like, do you have a death wish? Like, and the people were, they were nice. They just went, what is that? And Mal told them and then they went, oh, okay. And like didn't care, <laughs> which has been kind of like a blessing that they've had throughout where like our elderly neighbor, Mal was like, I'm not going to tell Dita. And then Mal was like, I told Dita. And then Dita was like, oh, also like I remember with Maymay, with my grandmother, sometimes I would say things just to shock her, just to see what she would do. Like I would just be so blatant about like sex or like sexuality or like bisexuality or like all this stuff just to see how like a 93 year old woman would react to that. 
And she would always just kind of be like, whatever. But like my parents would be like, stop telling her stuff. But I think like, I don't know. Sometimes it's good because it, you know, it like challenges them. Yeah, I guess it's again looking at your motivations for the sharing. So I would say like shock value, maybe not the healthiest reason to share something, (laughs) but for somebody to understand you better, for you to feel like by sharing your story, other people will feel less alone. I think that's a main motivator for me in a lot of ways. But also be aware of forced intimacy. Sometimes people really overshare and it's so that you will share and then it's like forced intimacy. Yeah, but again, it's like, who's this person? Do you feel safe with them? Mm -hmm, Do you feel... mm -hmm. And that's the other thing is like sharing on a one-to-one basis is like, is this person worthy of your share? Mm -hmm. Like, is are they a safe space to share this? Or are they like not really paying attention or like not dealing with it well? And then that's maybe not the person you, you share your deep stuff with. What do we say on the internet? I've talked for like 10 years on the internet. I don't even know what is out there anymore. Oh, yeah. I mean... I just think that we're really lucky and that like our fan base understands growth, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that like, you know, the things that I said on JBU couch show in 2014 is like not representative of me in, in 2021. I hope so. Like I say things yesterday that I don't even stand by anymore. Like I like have no, but like also I think like I've always kept some stuff to myself and, and I know that sounds like not true, but it is true. I don't know. Like, I've never talked explicitly about sex in my personal experience. And there's a whole chapter in my book about it. And it's really scary. Monetize it, baby. Well, I just felt like I couldn't do this book about dating with anxiety and then not talk about that part of it. And so, but like, I definitely like, I've had to like not reread that chapter very much. And I've had to like, I've had all these fears that like, the sharing was like too much or gratuitous or that it was like masturbatory and like and I was like am I sharing too much and like because this is an area in my life that I've literally never shared about before and so it really pushed my comfort level and and I like to pretend in my head that that chapter doesn't exist. (laughs) Being an artist who minds your own life is really wild. It's wild. Melissa want to come on in and share your thoughts? Overshare your thoughts? Ha, 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 ha. Melissa, do you overshare? I'm more of an undershare, I believe. That um, uh, I mean, I think the most sharing I do is on my podcast. But yeah, I'm an undershare. I like to be a mystery uh, that no one can ever mm-hmm. figure out. I like that. Do you feel like you understand yourself, though? Oh, yeah. I know who I am and I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we even here? Like, Melissa should just... <laughs> Anyway, what do we rate this episode? I will rate it 97 out of 82 accessible abortions. Yeah. I'll rate it 11 out of 12 healthy long distance relationships. Ooh. I'll rate it 30 out of 20 Mensa scholars. Oh, God. I'm joining Mensa. Do not encourage Gabby. (laughs) I'm joining Mensa. Well, Thank you to Liz Winstead for being our guest. <laughs> Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa DeMonts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. 
To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, patreon.com slash emotional support lady and patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn. And also at Gabby Road on Instagram and at Allison Raskin on Instagram. Also at She Is Not Melissa on Instagram. Okay, bye! Forever! Yeah.